It's Friday, September 18th in Los Angeles. I'm Mo Kelly, in for Oscar Ramirez, and this is The Daily Dive. The military has confirmed it sought information on using a heat ray against D.C. protesters. If that weren't enough, there were other military-grade weapons being considered through startling investigative reporting by Dina Temple Raston, investigations correspondent for NPR, who will walk us through the inquiries and the subsequent implications. Then, if you want to get away, Hawaii may be the place to do it. Hawaii is to begin allowing travelers who test negative for COVID-19 to bypass quarantine starting October 15th. David Oliver, social media editor for the travel section at USA Today, will tell us how we'll need to pack. And finally, if you're in California or Oregon, you might have noticed the orange to almost red hue of the sky. The phenomenon is connected to the ongoing brush fires, but not necessarily in the way you think. Sarah Kylie Watson, editorial assistant for Popular Science, will paint a clearer picture for us. It's the news without the noise. Let's dive in. It only penetrates uh, 164th of an inch of your skin. Goes very shallow uh, into where your nerve receptors are. Joining us now is Dina Temple-Raston, investigations correspondent for NPR. Dina, thank you for coming on today. You bet. The military confirms it sought information on using a heat ray against D.C. protesters. That's the headline, and that would seem concerning all by itself. My first question is, why would the military be seeking to intervene in a domestic protest? Well, it was the military police, and this is in Washington, D.C., right? Not Portland, Oregon. So it's a little bit different. But the National Guard and military police were all involved, along with the Metropolitan Police, in trying to not necessarily quell the protests, but certainly control protesters in the nation's capital. What do we know about the capabilities of this heat ray at this point? Because I assume the military would be very tight-lipped about any technology, much less its capabilities. Well, not this one, actually. This has been around for a couple of decades. And there, actually, if you go on YouTube, you can find quite a number of uh, military promotional videos about it. The heat ray, which makes it sound almost cartoonish, right? Uh, it's actually on a like a an or like a like a ray gun that you would see in some sort of space cartoon. It's actually mounted on top of a truck. It looks like a giant satellite dish. And if you go on YouTube, you can find a lot of sort of promotional films about the ADS system that is put out by the military itself. And basically what it shows is that they use these millimeter waves, which are different than microwaves, that basically give a sensation on the skin of heat. And the videos are almost oddly comical because they have sort of uh, high-ranking military officials who are sort of soft with this ray. And they immediately, it's kind of the sensation you have, they look like they've just been bitten by something. You know how you kind of start when Mm -hmm. you've been bitten? Mm -hmm. That's what it looks like. As far as I know, it has never been deployed inside the United States. There was some talk of it being deployed on the fringes of a G8 meeting in Pittsburgh. But like this talk that they did this time, it never really amounted to anything. It was one of the options that they discussed. You took my next question because the obvious question was for me <laughs> was the extent of use. If it's been around for decades in some form or fashion, that means it's being used in some form or fashion, most likely. Is there any indication 
from your investigation where it has been used around the world? Let me give you a generic example. The idea of it was always that, say, for example, you had a crowd outside an embassy somewhere, or you had a crowd that was descending on military soldiers who were on the field of battle, that it would be used in that sort of context. Do we know if and when it's used from any promotional video or any type of information within military communications that you've seen that this is a weapon which is only used on a certain portion of the body or could be used anywhere? And I want to make this comparison that although it's billed as being non-lethal, depending on how it's used, isn't there the possibility of it being lethal? The idea behind it is that it isn't lethal. The idea is that this is something that you would use so that you wouldn't be using bullets. So what, your option is a burning sensation instead of bullets? It's not, it's not a great option. But the idea has always been that this would not be a lethal device. But in the same way that there has been this other device that they were looking for from the D.C. National Guard, is something called an LRAD, a long-range acoustical device. And the LRAD is very loud, and if you're standing next to it, it could at least temporarily deafen you in mm-hmm. the same way that if you're standing right next to a siren, it would temporarily sort of ring your ears. These are all part of these weapons. I mean, this is a militarization of weapons that are being used on demonstrators. I'm not making any excuses for them whatsoever. All I'm saying is that the idea behind these weapons is that they're non-lethal weapons that could be used in crowd control. But as far as we've been able to tell from the reporting that we've done, this has never, ever been used. And LRAD has been used, of course. Uh, police use that. But something like this ADS system has never been used in the United States. Is it fair then to wonder where there is an escalation in the terms of techniques or technologies which may be employed or are being considered to quell these demonstrations? I get the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's a new class of weaponry which had not been considered before. Allegedly, it was briefly considered on the fringes of the G8 when the G8 was in Pittsburgh. But as a general matter, I guess I would take your supposition that there is sort of a militarization of this, a militarization of um, how you respond to protests. I think we've seen that across the board. I don't think it just has to do with these particular weapon systems or these particular devices. If you think about it, we have been looking at the way police departments have been up-armored for years now, as a concern about these APC-type vehicles that they drive with a kind of weapons that they're using. So this is sort of along that continuum. It's been a worrisome trend for a while, and this is just a continuation. I started our conversation highlighting the fact that the military confirmed that it sought information on using a heat ray. Do we know how the story ends big picture in the sense of they've sought the information, they've likely received the information. Do we have any indication of what they plan to do with the information in legitimate terms? So let me just give you sort of the TikTok of how this went. So we understand from a military whistleblower who provided written testimony to the House Natural Resources Committee. He basically wrote that he was forwarded an email. He was a top National Guardsman in the D.C. National Guard. He's now a military whistleblower. He was forwarded an email that asked about these two systems, LRAD and the ABS, the Active Denial System. So he was sent this email, and it was asked, does the D.C. National Guard, he was sent this email from the Joint Forces Headquarters Command in Washington, D.C., and this email said, 
is the National Guard in possession of these two devices. And the way it was confirmed to us by the military is they said that the command inquired informally about capabilities across the full spectrum of non-lethal systems to include the long-range acoustic device and the active denial system. And they said that they didn't possess those systems and they didn't actually request them and no further action was taken as a result of this email inquiry on the Joint Forces Command's part. Well, we understood from our whistleblower is his response about half an hour after this email was forwarded to him, was he responded and said, no, the D.C. National Guard doesn't have these systems. And then it was left at that. So this was at around 11 in the morning on June 1st. Hours later, federal police, D.C. police and U.S. Park police cleared Lafayette Square in front of the White House with tear gas and smoke. And as we know, those were peaceful protesters who were cleared that way. So it's sort of a continuum of events, right? In the morning, they're asking about this. We don't know exactly where they were going to use them. Maybe it wasn't going to be Lafayette Square. Maybe it was going to be somewhere else where they thought there would be problems. But whatever it was, this was the continuation of events. And finally, they culminated, as we all remember, not only in the clearing of the square before the curfew started in D.C., so a lot of people were surprised. But in addition to that, remember that President Trump then came out and had a photo op outside St. John's Episcopal Church, which is just on the side of Lafayette Square. She is Dina Temple Raston, investigations correspondent for NPR. Thank you, Dina, for all that fantastic information, and thank you for coming on today. You bet. Thanks for having me. I would read this as sort of somewhat, you know, bowing to pressure, but somewhat needing to get people traveling to Hawaii again. Joining us now is David Oliver, social media editor for the travel section at USA Today. How are you today, sir? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well. Looking forward to possibly traveling again. Hawaii is going to let travelers who test negative for COVID-19 to bypass quarantine starting October 15th. That would suggest to me that we're moving in the right direction as a country. The bad news would be that we're moving towards winter, not spring, and also assumes we haven't already started trending in a more negative direction by then. How would you read this announcement, big picture? I would read this announcement. It's something that has been postponed several times. So Hawaii's governor wanted to you know, put this in place August 1st, but, you know, had to keep postponing it as COVID cases kept spiking on both the U.S. mainland and also in Hawaii. And then they were going to start September 1st, and then they had to cancel that. So it's been pushed back so many different times. So I would read this as sort of somewhat, you know, bowing to pressure, but somewhat needing to get people traveling to Hawaii again. And, you know, cases have actually spread down from a higher average from like last week. So in theory, this could be the time to try it, but time will tell if this is going to work out. It's interesting. You say time will tell as if we really know what the future is going to hold. But from what it seems like you're telling me, it will be subject to what is happening not only in Hawaii, but in the United States as far as just infections, correct? That's what that means. Because in theory, as people start to travel again and these things begin to happen, like, you know, there could be lapses and whatnot. So it's what matters on both the U.S. mainland and in Hawaii. Yes. Travelers will have to take a COVID-19 test within 72 hours before their flight arrives, so it matters where their origination point is, arrives in the island. CVS and healthcare provider Kaiser Permanente have a 
agreed to conduct the test as part of this agreement with the state. But it highlights the obvious that people will be coming into contact with a lot of other people in life and in the airport in those preceding hours after the test, would they not? Yes, that's true. And airlines are supposed to be helping inform travelers of this requirement. And then Hawaii actually, earlier this summer, they're requiring travelers to fill out an online safe travels application in order to keep both residents and visitors healthy during the pandemic. So, you know, that's a digitizing a process that was once via paper. But, you know, they're trying to, I guess, you know, just make sure that people are aware of what's going on and they can keep track of where people have been, all in theory, to obviously prevent a spike in cases. But as we've seen with this pandemic, like, it can take, like, one person to fall out of line or to not answer truthfully or whatnot, it could end up becoming a super spreader. There is not necessarily complete freedom of movement for a traveler. If you were to fly into Waikiki, it does not mean that you can go to the other neighboring islands and just have free run and free exploration. Is that correct? No, at least not right now. No. In theory, like you can't just like once you're there, you have to say to a specific resort if they're, you know, if they're a part of this program. But a resort has to meet specific guidelines in order to become a part of this resort bubble program that was floated earlier this summer. Has this notification been met with overall cheer, glee? Are people happy about this? Or is it just very cautious in nature right about now? Just a general reaction. I think in general, I think it's something that we all sort of saw coming eventually. And then we were anticipating kind of each month this is going to happen or not. But then as, you know, cases started spiking, it was kind of a general like, oh, no. But then I think you've just seen it around the country. People are really fed up with being quarantined or, you know, not being able to move around as much. You're just seeing it in terms of like, you know, like, I guess even the whole Big Ten decision to start playing games again. Like, it's just, you know, it's around the country, this feeling. So I think it was not unexpected that this is going to be lifted or that there was, you know, this program will be in place soon enough. But like, kind of like I was saying before, it's like, we're going to have to wait and see if this is actually going to work out as well as people hope. When is the high time for Hawaii tourism specifically? Is it this time of year or is it some other time? It doesn't even necessarily matter at this point, like in terms of like the best season. It's like, I think if they can get travelers, you know, can go to Hawaii. I think that would be great for everybody in terms of trying to, you know, fix what's already really battered economy right now. He is David Oliver, social media editor for the travel section at USA Today. David, thank you for all of your insight and taking time out to share it with us today. Of course. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. When you're looking at a sunset and the sun is disappearing over the horizon, all of those wavelengths of light are having to go through more layers of the atmosphere. Joining us now is Sarah Kylie Watson, who is an editorial assistant with Popular Science. How are you today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. Beyond the wildfires, we've had wildfires here in Los Angeles County and surrounding counties for many years, but I don't remember a time in which I've seen that bright orange glow. Is there something more specific which is driving that particular color or the plentiful nature of the fires, which is making it orange in nature? So when you have a fire that's as big as these ones are, you've got a bunch of extra particles going up into the air. So on a normal day, if you're just looking outside your window and there aren't wildfires going on and the sky's blue, what's happening is that the particles that are normally in the air, that are water and other gases, are breaking out the sun's light into different wavelengths. The smallest wavelengths that bounce the farthest are blue. So you've got your blue particles in there. It's harder for the smaller wavelengths that are blue and so on 
to get through to all of that and light up the sky. So what happens is those orange and red, the longer wavelengths, kind of are able to take center stage. So you've got these dark, gloomy, weird, orange, red skies going on when you have a lot of particle pollution in the air, which is what's happening right now in San Francisco and other parts of the Pacific Northwest. I've heard conflicting information about whether it would be ideal to go outside even for a walk, much less any type of other strenuous activity outside, given the poor air quality. Is there any type of guide as far as when we might be able to get back to doing that, saying nothing of COVID-19, but just as the fires get more under control, what would be a good rule of thumb in terms of returning to our normal outdoor activity after the fires? It's going to vary, obviously, for places along the West Coast. Personally, I think it's just important to keep paying attention to your local news outlets because if you're in San Francisco or if you're in Oregon, it might be a little bit different. So just keep checking in on your local news because they're going to be the ones to get that information first. I don't know if you are a pet lover like I am, but I have two dogs and I have to be mindful about how much time they're spending outside because they're breathing the same air that we are. And maybe they might be hypersensitive to that. What type of other considerations might pet owners might have to make? Being sure that you're only taking enough time outside that you need. And also something you can think about when you're doing that is making sure that you're protecting yourself. Obviously, your pets are very important, but they aren't passing around COVID, so they are only dealing with the fires. So something to remember is if you're taking your dog for a walk or they need to go to the bathroom or whatever, take them out for a short little walk, try to spend as little time outside as possible, and make sure to wear your mask and pay attention to those kinds of things as well. I'm going to circle back to something you said near the beginning of our conversation. You were talking about the fires as far as how they are impacting, how light is refracting as far as giving its orange hue. So it's not necessarily connected to how brightly or how much a fire is burning. Is that correct? It's mostly about the atmosphere, not necessarily like the color of a fire. So it's basically the atmosphere is full of these particles. And so when it's full of these particles, then you're dealing with the wavelength. And it's kind of like a sunset. So when you're looking at a sunset and the sun is just peering over the horizon, all of those wavelengths of light are having to go through more layers of the atmosphere. Ah. That's why you're seeing those reds and oranges. So it's pretty much the same thing, except murkier and all day. That's what's going on in the atmosphere around these places that are having the fires. I am 50 years old, and I don't remember a time in which I've seen anything like that. Is it relatively uncommon or somewhat common for this phenomena as far as the color of the skies? So I guess it's common when you think about the sunset situation, but it's obviously not very common when it comes to everyday life. You know, as fires are progressively getting worse, possibly due to climate change, maybe it will be something that will be more common. But Yeah, this is not something that is normal that should happen on a normal day. (laughs) She is Sarah Kylie Watson, editorial assistant at Popular Science. Sarah Kylie, thank you so much for coming on today and your contributions. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories you are interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Mo Kelly, in for Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.